Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Seed to Forest. In this episode, I, Gaurav Gupta, Chief Growth Officer at XF Foundation, will be talking to Kruti Bharucha, founder and CEO at People. Kruti is a seasoned social entrepreneur with many accolades to her credit, and her organization People is working to transform the state of public education in India, and their work has received national as well as international recognition. In this episode, you can listen to Kriti speak about how they created an operating model that made classrooms engaging and transformed schools. You can also li- listen to Kriti speak about how they identified building blocks that could make this model work at scale and how they would package and embed these in institutional programs running at scale. I learned a lot about how to unbundle a program into components for transformation at scale and i hope you will unlock a lot of possibilities too happy listening hello everyone i have with me priti bharuja today priti is the founder and ceo of people and people is an organization where they dream about a world where every child is enabled and supported to reach their true potential people as a team really prides itself in the strengths and the diversity of the talent that they have which works relentlessly each day so that this dream can be realized priti on her own is a distinguished leader with more than 22 years of experience and in her role prior to people she was associated with mckinsey and company she has worked at world bank the imf and was also a senior director who led the corporate executive boards finance practice in india besides priti has received many awards she has been a business world 40 under 40 a rainer fellow by the mulazo foundation and she was selected as the only indian on that in 2020 and very recently priti also received the innovation leadership award by the world innovation congress this year so Welcome, Priti. Thank you for making time, and we really look forward to talking to you about people and the journey that you've had in this conversation. So let's start at the beginning, right? Uh, I mean, of course, you've had a distinguished career, and uh, uh, you came out of it and then started people, right? And and at this moment, let me also talk about the fact that you had a detailed conversation with Shantanu. in the barber shop talking about the journey so i urge your listeners to listen to that uh, talk of uh, priti as well uh, but priti just for our listeners on this episode if you can talk about what was the change that you wanted to bring about that led to the birth of people yeah sure thank you so much gorath i think for quite a while i think just as an economist that forayed into the corporate sector i think there was a certain life path that i was following in the early years of my professional life and i think as an economist that coming from a family of economists there was that sense there was an understanding of policy issues with regard to reform development so on and so forth so while i started at mckinsey i think the world bank and the imf kind of gave me a good exposure into the macroeconomics and then naturally when i went to corporate executive board the finance and strategy practice was seemed like the right home for me where i would continue to build on those skills and follow that particular life path and as i did continue on the corporate side i think i continued to 
think about the other side of development and not just economics, right? Development policy and reform. And think about as a country where we have numbers that are just staggering. And so unlike many other regions of the world, we also have significant problems associated with poverty, with inequality. And that is something that as a child kind of just stayed with me in terms of understanding that there are significant development challenges that need to be addressed for the country. And we were coming out of a couple of decades of more stringent economic policies, which the country was opening up with liberalization. And there just seemed so much potential to actually think about broader solutions to actually bring India onto a path with reduction in poverty, with increase in equality across all sections of society. And for me, I think I felt that one of the things as I was pursuing my corporate career was to reflect on what it was or what it might be that is the root of some of these reasons for a lack of adequate development for the country. And I think for me, education was probably prime and core. As I thought about my own journey, I reflected that, you know, I had received a good education and a lot of exposure to various contexts and situations. And that helped me really grow professionally. And many of those opportunities are not available to many Indians, especially those from very vulnerable and marginalized communities. And therefore, when that basic right to education is not met and not delivered at quality, it reduces the life chances for millions of children who then grow up and don't actually contribute as much to the workforce or to the economy or to citizenship as much as they might if they had received a better quality education. So 2013, 2014 is when I reached a professional milestone at Corporate Executive Board and felt that professionally I had attained the milestone of becoming Managing Director in India. And having checked that box, I asked myself, well, what would I want to do for the rest of my life? And I think this was where my heart told me I wanted to be. And I felt that it was then a question of finding the right organization, the right role, the right opportunity. And that's how it all kind of came about. That's very interesting in terms of the background that you had and how you connected it to really looking at what can change in India at scale and hence providing opportunities in education. So how did it all start? I mean, what did the first few days really look like as you embarked on the journey? I think it, you know, for a lot of people who are thinking about social entrepreneurship and especially in education and including a lot of young people who come out of the Teach for India Fellowship, for example, one of the things that is always on everybody's mind is that end goal is to open a school and to actually create an exemplar school where it becomes very real and it becomes truly transformative because you can see the change that happens when you're directly reaching students and you're able to actually change practices in the classrooms. So that's how it started. It was a very similar vision. It was a similar goal, which is to say, let's create these high performing schools because ultimately, when you want to be transformative in a child's life, you start with, you know, those hundred children who you can meaningfully impact. And you think about, uh, and so that's where, the con- that's where the journey started, thinking about how do we create these exemplar high quality schools, which can be exemplars within the government system. And so the idea of a public-private partnership school came along. And so by then public-private partnership or PPPs were used for many infrastructure projects. 
but hadn't really been used for social or development sector initiatives, you know, had not necessarily been, there was some work that had been done in the health sector, but in education, it hadn't quite taken off for a number of reasons. And so we thought that the goal should be to create these, maybe to explore this path of PPPs in India. And because we were in Delhi, we said, let's actually start with the municipal corporation in Delhi to actually take on a school which is under-resourced, under-enrolled. And you don't have to then invest in land, buildings. A lot of the capital costs are not needed. But you invest in all of the software that goes into the school. And then you kind of show the magic or the transformation that might be possible when you kind of reallocate resources or you focus on a different type of teaching and engagement in the classroom. And so that's how it really started, saying that let's start first with one school, let's show that transformation, build that belief, bring around and, and have some momentum around PPPs as an idea, and then think about replicating that to an increased number of schools. That's how the journey began, Gaurav. But, you know, a couple of years into that journey, I think we realized that PPPs were also a bit of a parallel system to the way that the government was functioning, right? So the school, the first school was very successful. It was a turnaround project. I mean, I think that's when, when people came and visited the school, they realized, you know, what was possible and the bar that we had placed for ourselves and to do it in a way which was very cost effective. So we were not creating a Taj Mahal here. We were not creating and resourcing it like a private school. We were using the same cost per child as is spent in a government school, but having different practices in terms of the training given to teachers, what actually happens in the classroom, the kind of more holistic school leadership and instructional approach that's taken. But then the question from a lot of people, including the Secretary of Education at that time was, this is great, but just doing it in 20 schools or 100 schools will never be enough for the size of the country that we have. And so how do you integrate a lot more with the system and how do you scale something like this? And that's where our questioning began also around, it is a fair question. And I think what kept many of us on the leadership team awake at night was really, okay, how do we solve for this? Because we've not developed an understanding of the ecosystem within the government. We've not worked directly with a lot of the teachers. We had hired our own teachers. And so that's where the thinking started around how do we actually integrate a lot of this quality and excellence into government schools and work within the government system to actually improve quality at scale. And I can really imagine this challenge pretty because uh, it's uh, easier said than done. Because you, you're just on the back of the transformation that you saw in those handful of schools, but, but effective transformation uh, with quality. Uh, and then trying to, you know, figure out how to replicate it with a much bigger set. And, you know, you spoke about the transformation or the change that you brought about in the schools, right? Uh, so if you can, uh, for the listeners, kind of clarify what would that re uh, uh, what was that really in terms of some changes in behavior, some changes in practices, uh, what was that? In terms of what happens that's different in the school is, you know, the building is the same. The outside infrastructure is the same. But the classroom itself is extremely different. So when you go into the classroom, I think a number of things that are quite different about the classroom that we think is a best practice or an exemplar classroom. I think one is just focusing on, and I'll get into kind of what we, the kind of four or five things that we focus on at scale. But if you just enter a classroom, it will be a very high engagement classroom where students are 
engaged in learning. The teacher is differentiating and has an understanding of the different learning levels of each child. Um, there are two things. One is the look and feel of the classroom, right? And then there is the, what are the techniques that exist in the classroom that we've been able to inculcate in every teacher? The look and feel of the classroom, when you enter the classroom, typically when you enter a classroom, a kind of more traditional classroom, you'll have row seating, you'll have the teacher at the board, and you will be having much more directive instruction, right? So the teacher will be explaining, may ask one or two children to come up and do an explanation or do the practice on the board, but it's pretty much just much more directive and the children are listening and not necessarily engaging. When you enter the look and feel in what we think an exemplar classroom should be is you have you have seating of six children together. So you've got kind of group seating as opposed to row seating. And so you've got six to eight children grouped together so that they are able to see each other, they're able to engage in peer learning. You've got a very print-rich classroom. So you've got display boards, which are not up for the sake of just having some colorful images up. They're actually active display boards, which are used by the teacher to explain certain concepts and is worked into the daily routine of every classroom and every school day. The third is just a use of resources and materials for children to be able to understand a concept, right? And so, again, typically when you go to a traditional classroom, you will find pen and paper, you will find notebooks, you may find textbooks and you will find a bag, but you will not necessarily have the resourcing or as much money spent on things like just building blocks for children or ways in which they can learn maths better, you know, using beads or blocks or manipulatives as we call them, so that you make ideas less concrete and you I make ideas less abstract and a lot more concrete. So those are the three things. I think one is just the way that even children sit together, the print-rich active displays in the classroom. And third, just the use of manipulatives and resources for children to actually explain and understand a concept. And then that's at the classroom. I think across the school, you just find a lot of vibrant display work done by children. And that gets changed pretty much on a weekly basis. So you've got active boards across the entire school also. And then you've got rewards and recognition for children. You've got attendance and numbers kind of put outside the classroom so that you can track those metrics. So a lot of interaction and anybody coming into the school will immediately be able to get a sense of how the school might be functioning. In terms of what happens in the classroom itself, in terms of classroom practice, one is there's a big focus on just classroom management and behavior management. Because when it comes to engagement, it's also important to actually be able to roll out strategies which are important to retain and uh, hold the attention of every single child. Right? So if I think about four strategies that have really worked with teachers and that we're also training teachers on at scale, there is cold calling, which is making sure that you use a technique to be able to know every child's name and make sure every child participates. So it's not just the smartest kids in the classroom, but it's every single child. And the child may make mistakes, but just developing that confidence. Uh, a second is a hook, right? So before you actually get into the lesson plan, it's actually being able to also put a teaser or create some interest in the lesson itself for that child. Right? And so, especially in primary grades, right? That hook is very important because you start engaging the child. 
and it gives them some context and then you can actually help them understand the, the lesson itself. Third is circulate, right? For the teacher to actually be able to go across tables and actually show the child that they are interested and engaging with the child's work and getting a sense of the learning levels of each child. Right. And uh, Pritya, as a lot of this would have been happening, I'm sure there would have been a lot of learnings, there would have been a lot of mistakes, right? And uh, one continuously iterates on the back of these learnings and mistakes. We can speak about a few of them also because uh, I believe this transformation, it, it's not something which has been trapped in the past. And you were here trying to fix a few things in the context of the existing operating model, right? So, so what were those learnings and mistakes that kind of came through as that I am learning a lot in this conversation. Hope you are too. Which questions would you like me to ask? What areas would you like me to explore further? Please write to me at gaurav.xstep.org. So I think one big one was making sure that there is government ownership at all levels, not just at the highest level of the senior most civil servant, but actually at all levels of the machinery to actually make sure that there is an understanding. So at the level of the school inspector, making sure that they are part of this initiative and it is not that we as an NGO are delivering this and we didn't want to come across as creating conflict within the system or competition within the system saying this is an NGO, of course they can do it, they have the resources. Us as government officials with our limited resources and the challenges that we face every day, will never be able to do this. So I think one huge learning for us has been to engage stakeholders at all levels and have them be part of the process of change and transformation. I think that was one big thing which we've incorporated into the way that we think about programs and roll them out across geographies now. The second was to have perhaps a clearer, and this is something we're still figuring out, I think it's to have much more codification of what is actually happening so that you can replicate and export that to other places. Because, for example, what I described in terms of teaching practices, um, a lot of it was known to the teacher. It was what we were rolling out in our teacher training. But we hadn't simplified and codified it to the extent that we have now, where we can say, here are three things that we want teachers to focus on in terms of improving classroom engagement. So I think... That clarity and codification is important because that helps things spread faster, right? And it helps absorption by others who are not necessarily attached to the program, but provides other people ideas and ways in which they can implement. I think a third is in classrooms and in schools, when you think about school turnaround, ultimately you're doing assessments and you are uh, rolling, you are every year tracking how much a child is growing in terms of learning. When you start scaling, you have to figure out the right ways of assessing the success of your program. And so that was, a, to be honest, a bit of trial and error guidance from advisors, donors, partners on how other organizations also measure impact, right? So I think a lot of learning for us where in the initial days we were trying to figure it out putting some metrics around it, trying to figure out how to link it with learning outcomes and now have a much stronger theory of change, much more rigorous measurement of intermediate outcomes and running baseline and endline assessments for our programs. So a lot of evolution and maturity that's been developed of that front. 
Got it. Now, uh, uh, what were the mistakes? I mean, you know, something that you saw along the way, which you kind of, you know, uh, as you reflect upon. And see, the realization may not have been then and there. It may have happened later also, right? That had we done it this way, it may have been better. So, so what were some of the mistakes that you would like to call out? I, I think early on it was, you know, it was creating that sense of us versus them with regard to us as a non-profit partner and government. So I think not being cognizant enough of saying it's not us versus them, it is we. And messaging that very carefully from the beginning itself. So I think that's a mistake that we made, right? Making sure that we don't come across as it's an us versus them because that's not good for shifting and transformation itself. You never want to get into that space where it's us versus them when you're working at scale. So I think that was one mistake. Um, I, I think a second was perhaps not being fully aware of the workflow of a government teacher and official. It took us a while to kind of figure out how the process and system works. Right. And, you know, there is empathy to be had also for teachers who are genuinely trying to make a change and make a difference, but are overburdened sometimes with administrative responsibilities or officials who have any other tasks that they have to manage. And so just perhaps a mistake was not identifying early enough and having that sensitivity and empathy for the real challenges that a teacher will also go through and how well-intentioned they could be, but may just find it difficult to bring about that change. So I think those are two things that we've early on was not fully clear for us, which we've tried to change. And, and especially uh, now, when you look at the journey that could have been from doing these things at scale, what has changed in terms of some of the principles that guide people in terms of the decisions that you make or uh, how, how you operate on the ground? So what are the guidance principles or what has changed? One is just having much more clarity in terms of our model and approach. So earlier, I think there was a sense that, you know, we kind of go in there, figure it out and really do what it takes. But I think realizing that as ambitious and well-intentioned and flexible and agile as we are, um, one does have to have model clarity in terms of what are the big leverage points that you want to really be able to change or improve and engage on. So, you know, in 2020, actually having that model clarity was super helpful. So I think that is one part of just our communication, vision setting strategy that fundamentally shifted how we thought about our programs. And then the second thing is making sure that we are aware of using that model to actually figure out how a new program fits into the components or the bundle of that model that we have. So for example, if we go to a new state, we know exactly what the components of the model are. We know exactly the heart of what we're trying to change, which is to move to high engagement teaching in a classroom. That is a what if we want to change. And then we know how we want to do it within the government school setting at, at scale. If we enter a new state, we have that formula, that toolkit with us. Right. Uh, then we need to figure out, okay, what is it with this particular state that is working really well? And what are the components of the model that we should bring into the state? You know, maybe they don't need help with everything. Maybe there are components of the model that are actually working quite well. But how do we then sequence those components of the model? Do we do everything at one shot? Do we do it? Do we stagger it over time, et cetera? But I think for us, really having that model clarity and then fitting our programs into that so that you don't have scope creep. Because otherwise, when you grow as an organization, it's very tempting to seize every opportunity that comes your way. And then I think now 
I'm realizing that you just have to kind of say no and maybe to some things because it may not fully align with your model and it distracts from the change that you want to bring about. Now, look, Priti, we haven't talked about you. How do you look at digital infrastructure? Do you think uh, over time it has really helped you? And, and where do you see that going in the future to enable, enable a lot of initiatives that organizations like yours take in this one? So for us, the teacher is the unit of change, right? I mean, teacher agency is incredibly important because ultimately there is a direct human connection and the teacher and the child have to really be able to engage with each other to be able to move the dial on classroom practice and learning. However, if we look at, if we look at the country, it's not easy to reach every single teacher, every single school, every student, right? And so that's where I think digital infrastructure plays a huge role in actually getting to that last mile, making information available and equal to every single school leader or teacher, for example. So in 2020, when we started scaling our teacher professional development work in Madhya Pradesh, uh, Deeksha as our digital platform is what actually helped us roll out our digital teacher training modules because schools were closed, classrooms were not operational, children were not coming to school. Everything was very up in the air and ambiguous. And so then to have that clarity and say, okay, fine, here's a solution where we partner with Diksha and actually have the backbone that is needed to be able to reach every single teacher to impart this kind of learning digitally, because we have the know-how of what that training and skill building should look like, but we need to find a way to reach every single teacher in a place where we cannot do face-to-face trainings. And I think for us, leveraging that digital platform and that digital backbone is what allowed us to actually scale this program to all 300,000 teachers in Madhya Pradesh. If it hadn't been for that digital infrastructure at that point, we would not have been able to manage. And it would have become a lot more complex. So I think the role of digital infrastructure in just last mile support and last mile access, but also in you know, simplifying the process of outreach, right? I, if I think about what would have happened if Diksha had not been there, we would have created these teacher skilling and teacher training modules in a bite-sized way. We would have probably set up lots of WhatsApp groups. We would have circulated it in that manner, but it would have possibly not been the most process-efficient thing to do. It would have needed a lot of implementation support. It would have needed a lot of a different in kind monitoring. We would not necessarily have been able to track the uptake and usage and engagement with every single module. And it may not have been as successful because we may not have been able to really reach every single teacher. So Diksha allowed us, and of course it was the early days of Diksha, and we were able to then co-create and iterate on certain modules, but we were able to then reach, use a particular process and flowchart for us to be able to upload the digital modules, for us to then make sure that every single teacher had a single sign-on for Madhya Pradesh onto the platform. And then for us to be able to track metrics, right? To be able to track how many teachers actually downloaded it and viewed it, what was the playtime, how many minutes. We were able to add on things like a pre-course assessment, post-course assessment. So one, it allowed us to make the process a lot more efficient. But second, it allowed us to really make enhancements so that even learning for the teacher was more on point and could be tracked and was much more effective. And then in terms of way going forward, again, as you talked about the work that Takestep is doing on digital infrastructure and the kind of building blocks that you're creating, I think there's just a lot of exploration and partnership that can be done 
to figure out how you can actually actively integrate that with education delivery and programs because there are probably so many components of digital infrastructure that HSTEP is building out. And sometimes if you can incorporate some of that early on when a program is being designed, then you can work on all of these things, last mile support, process efficiency, program effectiveness. Um, and so I think as I look ahead, I think one is just for us to develop a more aligned and greater understanding and awareness of what is the kind of digital infrastructure that's being planned for the future for the country. And then second, as providing input as, as programs, right, that are working at scale to actually strengthen and enhance that digital infrastructure as well. Because the world is changing in so many ways. I mean, everybody starts, everybody keeps talking about ChatGPT, but there are so many more things that will probably come in the coming future. And so understanding how program design and delivery might change as a result of how the world is changing from a digital perspective is critically important. So in a way, you're articulating that, of course, you know, while digital infrastructure can help with reach, with uh, efficiency, and with also in terms of making enhancements around, you know, what one may do, the way forward can be really to not just build awareness of what it can do, but also to kind of co-create and co-participate yeah. in what uh, other, other use cases that can show up in this context around which uh, digital infrastructure can really enable a lot of initiatives and uh, programs. And ICSEP is doing such pioneering work, right, in this space, I think, in India globally. And so with that program lens in terms of co-creating, I think it's also an opportunity for us to pioneer many of these aspects of digital infrastructure globally as well. I mean, in India, of course, where you want to be able to then roll it out across states and so on, but also for us to globally be able to actually take that and share it with other countries that may find maybe facing very similar challenges and might benefit from this kind of a digital backbone and digital infrastructure. Actually, already a lot of uh, that has begun to happen. So, for example, in the context of G20, uh, there are already many countries reaching out to the government of India, uh, looking at leveraging uh, something like Diksha. And uh, in fact, the government of India has declared Diksha as a digital global good which can be leveraged uh, by any country. So so I think uh, more power to that and you know how uh, this, this materializes. So pretty enough, I've come to the last section. Your favorite aha moment in terms of, uh, you know, uh, what a teacher or a parent or a student or an official, whoever, you know, would have said something which told you, yes, you know, it's really happening. So there was a government uh, school inspector who was very apprehensive because there was this kind of us versus them sense in 2018 you know, 16, 2017, and incredibly challenging to work with because there was always a hesitation, lack of trust, et cetera, et cetera. So quite challenging to kind of engage. Um, we really encouraged that person to visit the school. He came to the school and he left and said, I know that I've been difficult to work with. I know that I've been very critical of your work and there have been reasons for that, but I've seen what you are doing and I'm now going to support you with all my heart. Wow. And I think that was just, I mean, things are really changing. To be able to change someone's mind, it was very, yeah, I think it was it was very special. Wow. wow. Awesome. Your favorite prediction for the future that you would like to see come through? For education? Yeah, in the context of the people, yeah. I'm very optimistic, right? So I'm generally very optimistic. My prediction is that we're going to see 
you know, there is so much government ownership for quality now that I, I really believe that we're going to start seeing significant transformation and improvement in the quality of teaching in classrooms. And so I'm really happy that people has been part of that journey. And I, I do think that there is so much more that we can do in terms of also taking this to other states, sharing this with the Ministry of Education, sharing it with other organizations. But yeah, my prediction is that we will see significant changes in classroom practice and just much more talk around quality and delivery of education quality in government school systems. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Priti. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for being so candid and sharing about the journey that people have had, as well as some of the mistakes and the model that you've created around this. Uh, we wish you all the very best in the endeavor that you have chosen. And we wish to see that the prediction that you just made comes true as soon as possible. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much, Karun. I unlocked a lot of possibilities in this conversation. Hope it did the same for you. Which leaders would you like me to meet? What would you like me to ask them? Please write to me at gauravetextep.org.